Facebook users provide lots of information about the structure of their relationship graph. Facebook uses that information to provide content and services that are expected to be important to users. If Facebook knows who the most important people in my life are, Facebook can use that knowledge to serve me content that is more relevant to me. John Kleinberg studied Facebook network structures together with Lars Backstrom, creating a paper called Romantic Partnerships and the Dispersion of Social Ties, a network analysis of relationship status on Facebook. The goal of this study was to find a metric that could help rank the strength of relationships on Facebook, primarily to find the romantic partner of somebody else on Facebook. The results of this study have implications for sociology, as well as the way that we think about building social networks as engineers. John is a professor of computer science at Cornell, and he wrote the textbook Algorithm Design, which I used in college. It's an awesome textbook, and it was a privilege to get to talk to him because he wrote the book on stable matching and Dijkstra's algorithm and things like network flow. Uh, he didn't write these, he didn't create these algorithms, but he wrote about them in such eloquence. Um, if you like this episode, you should definitely check out that textbook, Algorithm Design. With that, I hope you like this episode, and let's get on with it. John Kleinberg is the co-author of a paper published out of Facebook research called Romantic Partnerships and the Dispersion of Social Ties, a network analysis of relationship status on Facebook. John, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks very much. I'm happy to be here. All right. Wonderful. So what was the goal of this paper? So, right, so I think this started uh, with some work that Lars Backstrom and I were doing. Um, Lars uh, works at Facebook and uh, manages the newsfeed ranking group. And w- one question that uh, comes up with newsfeed, of course, is to try figuring out how from a huge amount of, of information uh, that's being produced by, by your friends and potentially something that you might want to see each day, how to filter that down to the content that's going to be the most relevant, the most important, the most meaningful to you. So there are lots of features that obviously go into a system like that, uh, ranging from, you know, the the activity that you engage in, the kinds of content that you've engaged with in the past, uh, down to the network structure on the people that you're connected to, right? So you have all these friendships and the question becomes, which are the strongest connections and which are weaker connections because there are some people where you want to see what happened to them you know what's new from them each and every day you want to see what they did this morning what they did last night and there are some people where you just want to hear from them periodically maybe right these are your more distant acquaintances you want to hear from them every you know once or twice a year when there's some major event in their life and so it becomes very important to figure out how to how to basically grade the strengths of different social connections that you have on Facebook. And so we began thinking about that question and and how to look at the various strengths of the connections and the different types of connections you had. And certainly these types of connections, you know, were quite challenging to figure out from the net, net, network structure. And so we would look at these various types. And one that for a long time kind of uh, eluded our ability uh, to detect it from the network was uh, relationship partners. Now, in some sense, of course, uh, this, this was sort of a test case for us in that 
you know, if you wanted to know who someone's relationship partner was, you could check the relationship status field. You could see who they listed as their relationship partner. So in some sense, for, you know, for people who um, share that information with Facebook, it's, it's not in any sense hidden. But it becomes a good test for the more general, the broader question of how you find relationships from the network structure. If we can say, let's, let's hide the right answer from the system. Let's pretend it didn't know who the relationship partner was. And let's just show it your network of connections. Is there some way that it could actually figure that out? Because if it could figure it out from the network, we would have actually accomplished something new in our ability to un- understand uh, information that we can gain from the network structure. Right. And not just that, but not everybody lists their relationship status on Facebook. It has this, Facebook has this relationship status feature, but not everybody uses it. Maybe they're uncomfortable telling Facebook who their romantic partner is, or they have an unusual romantic situation. So, but from Facebook's point of view, Facebook would still like to know what is the romantic structure of a person's life because that's going to allow Facebook to present more relevant content to the end user and do all sorts of other things that are important to to Facebook. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, in the end, um, Facebook is a platform where people are trying to share things, you know, that they want to uh, ex- express with their social circle and who they want to engage with. Um, you know, and so I think we were thinking about it as, you know, there's a lot of latent information um, that potentially could be useful for trying to show content that's going to be, uh, you know, the the most relevant for people. But it's also the case that, of course, what we're trying to do is get out of the network, you know, things that people are already implicitly comfortable sharing through the pattern of connections that they've made and through the friend requests that they've both sent out and accepted. So what was your hypothesis coming into this project, uh, sitting in front of the data set, um, what kinds of ideas did you have? Right. So since we were starting from this question of how to find the strongest ties among the friendships that you've declared in your network, um, we went back to look at this uh, rich literature in sociology on the notion of tie strength. And so tie here just means link. Um, And the, the idea is that all of our friendships can be sort of uh, laid out on the spectrum, ranging from extremely close friendships to distant acquaintanceships. Of course, it's not a completely one-dimensional spectrum. You know, we can be close friends with people in some contexts and close friends with other people in different contexts. But this notion that ties have very different strengths, that was a starting point for, for how to think about this. And so the idea was what is it that the field of sociology suggests to us might be useful for detecting um, uh, detecting these these very strong ties? And one thing that it suggests uh, is this notion of the embeddedness of a relationship, which is essentially the number of mutual friends that you have with somebody. So if you think about uh, someone who you're friends with, count up all the number of people that you both know, right, that you have as friends in common. Um, we say that the link is embedded in those surrounding friendships because essentially if you picture actually drawing it out as a network picture, right, with you and your friend as dots connected by a line between you denoting the friendship, then each of those mutual friends is some other dot which you're both connected to. It sort of forms a triangle. 
right? There's your connection to your friend and your mutual connection to this other person, making three sides of a triangle. And so the link is highly embedded in lots of triangles if you have all of these mutual friends, right? So the number of mutual friends, the embeddedness. And that was viewed as a quantity that tended to be larger when you had stronger ties. So that, that was sort of the starting point. Right. So the literature suggested, the sociological literature suggested that this embeddedness, this was a key structural feature of tie strength. The strength of your tie with another person is how many mutual friends you share with that person. So if I'm, if I, if I'm a friend with, if I'm friends with you on Facebook, uh, you know, the, with the embeddedness hypothesis, the strength of our friendship could be measured by how many mutual friends you and I have. Right. It's that's exactly a, a good description of it. So that was that was the starting hypothesis, and that was what was was supported by by this long literature in sociology, uh, dating back to people like Mark Granovetter and other other very influential people in, in the field of sociology. So it's an intuitive concept because if you're close friends with somebody, then over time you're going to acquire mutual friends because you'll do things together with these other people. You'll introduce people, you know, you'll introduce your friend to other friends of yours. They'll introduce you to friends of theirs and gradually you'll, you'll acquire these mutual friends. It, it made a lot of sense. Um, and it, it certainly is correct that when you look at these highly embedded links, they tend to do correspond to people that you spend a lot of time with that, 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 that you know quite well. So we went to the data and, you know, and, and how does one do that? So in the data at Facebook, there's uh, information about the entire social network structure, right? And so when you, um, you know, when you go online on Facebook, you know, it's, it's going to have the information that you've shared with it about who your friends are and who, you know, and crucially, which of your friends are friends with each other, right? So the thing to picture is there's you at the center of this conceptual picture of your network. Arrayed around you are all of your friends with links to them. But then between pair, certain pairs of them <clears throat> are links indicating that they're friends. So what this often will look like is your coworkers. You know, there'll be a set of your coworkers among your friends, and there'll be lots of links among them because they all know each other. And there is a, a, a different group. Maybe that's a different group as your old friends from school, and there are going to be lots of links among them. And maybe there's a small cluster for your family members who are on Facebook. There are links among them. And there are the, these other links that cross, cross between the groups. So we take the data. We lay it out in this network structure. You, all of your friends... And essentially the network on your friends, which immediately kind of has this sort of very clustered structure. Um, and, and we said, okay, let's try the first thing that's suggested by the literature. Let's rank everybody by their embeddedness. Let's just take everyone and let's just sort them highest embeddedness at the top and just working our way down. And let's look at the people at the very top and say, are these indeed your closest friends? Is one of them, for example, your relationship partner? Right? Because if we had this kind of ranking, it could be quite useful at trying to figure out, you know, who in your social circles can be sort of most important to you as you, as you, as you engage with the content that's coming from them. So that was, yeah. that was where we started. Yeah. So, so, so taking a step back, like from a sociological perspective, is like, is, does the, your romantic partner fit on a gradient 
of your relationships because you know it's like a, I think of a romantic partner. Maybe in some in some relationships, your romantic partner is somebody that just comes from your group of friends, and you you know this person could fit somewhere on a sliding scale of everybody else you know in terms of embeddedness. But in other situations, you meet somebody on a train. Uh, this person has no other connection to you. You hit it off with them, and you you start a relationship. And this person has totally orthogonal sets of people that they are embedded with. Um, and this actually strikes me as non-representative of a characteristic relationship that you would have among groups of people you know. Um, would you say that's accurate? Or yeah, to I what- think that's a good. That's a good description. And, and I think, you know, this is exactly where the challenges began to show in trying to apply the sociological theory to what we were what we were seeing on Facebook. Because this idea that there's this one-dimensional number, you know, called the strength of the relationship, that clearly is an oversimplification in so many dimensions of of real life. Right. When when we, we know people our relationships with people, you know, be they relationship partners, family members, close friends, um, these are multidimensional things. They have different attributes. They they are more or less active in different contexts. And so, in some sense, the whole premise of trying to rank them is is extremely challenging. And and I think again, you know, coming back to part of our motivation, this is how we began thinking about uh, relationship partners in particular because they did seem to be in a lot of respects, you know, off of the normal set of axes with which we would think about, about, about the other, the other interactions, the other friendships, the other relationships in our lives. And so if we really wanted to be able to recognize and understand them, we were going to have to do something different. I, I should also say that complicated as this is, you could ask if it's so complicated, why are we even trying to order people in this way? Why are we trying to find different things? You know, and that's because when say you're interacting with a social media setting like Facebook, there is something that is in a sense one dimensional, which is your attention. You're going to be seeing certain things and you're not going to be seeing certain other things based on what the system chooses to show you. So at some base level, the system is stuck. It's caught having to make a decision about what to show you and what to filter out. And so complicated as this is, in the end, the user expects something out of the system. The user wants to see something. And so at some point, there, there becomes this question of, of how to integrate all this information. Mm. So that was, that, that was the challenge that, that we faced, that these aren't typical relationships. They're not characterized in the ways you'd expect. And so we needed some other way of thinking about how, how, how they operated. Mm. And uh, you navigated away from this idea of embeddedness to a r- related uh sort of approach, you propose this alternative method called dispersion. What is dispersion? Right. So what's dispersion? Why is it different? Why do we need something different from embeddedness? So if we ordered your friends by embeddedness, because we, you know, you take the network data, you rank things by embeddedness, what you discover is the people at the very top are, in fact, people that, you know, users do know very well. Um, but they're, they're very often people like coworkers. They're like old friends from school. Because if you think about it, uh, someone that you work with, suppose you're at a medium-sized company and everybody's on Facebook, 
And so you have you have this friendship with someone who you work with, and maybe you have forty mutual friends, all of them coworkers from the company. You know, maybe you have sixty mutual friends. And yet, if you were to say, you know, is this one of your very closest friends? You'd say, I know them. I see them on a regular basis, you know, multiple times a week because we work together. You know, but uh, you don't think of them as one of your your closest friends. Well, meanwhile, family members, relationship partners, they were somehow flying under the radar of embeddedness. They weren't scoring as highly because they just couldn't assemble the same sheer mass of mutual friends that you know, your coworkers or anyone you had been together with in this kind of big context, like, you know, college or a company or so forth. So what, what was special about the relationship partner? And as we began to look at it, what jumped out at us was um, something I mentioned a couple of minutes ago, that your, your network, your network of friends is highly clustered. So there's the coworker cluster, there's the old friends from your childhood cluster, there's a family cluster, there's some hobby you have or some sports team you play on. And all of these are these different clusters. They're very tightly connected within each other. There's not a lot of connection between them. But then there are a few people in your network neighborhood who sort of defy this easy classification into clusters. Um, and family members are one example. And your relationship partner is an extremely salient example of this. Because what tends to happen you know, and again, whether it's someone you've known for a long time, whether it's someone you've recently met, what tends to happen is that the mutual friends you have with that person actually reach into a number of different clusters in in your life, right? So, what will often be the case not 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 always. All, all of these are sort of statements on 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 average, right? But what will often be the case is that the mutual friends you have with with a relationship partner. It's going to include a few coworkers you do things with socially. It's going to include a number of your family members. It's going to include some of your old friends from childhood, people from other parts of your life, right? People that you've introduced your relationship partner to, or people where the two of you operate in that same context. And so you and your relationship partner almost act sort of that relationship acts like a bridge between different parts of your life, right? There are very few other friendships in your life where the mutual friends come from so many different parts of it. And so we said, maybe it's not just about embeddedness, it's not just about counting the number of mutual friends, but it's about looking at the pattern of connections among those mutual friends. And in particular, if the mutual friends are highly dispersed around your network neighborhood, um, then in fact, that suggests something significant about this friendship, right? This connection that you have, the fact that there's somehow very little connection among the mutual friends that you have. They're, they're highly spread out, they're highly dispersed. It's kind of funny because dispersion seems almost the inverse of embeddedness. Yeah, it's a funny um, thing where is, is that accurate? Because because embeddedness is how you you know you and me how closely tied are our um, mutual friends, and dispersion is how disperse are our mutual friends. Yeah, in some sense, dispersion is balancing two things, and 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 this is this was sort of one of the funny things about embeddedness as a concept that embeddedness numerically is just a count of how many mutual friends, but the intuition had always been that you know highly embedded ties these mutual friends would be closely connected with each other, and in a sense, dispersion is trying to sort of walk this knife edge. It's trying to balance between two things: there should be many mutual friends, but they should not be well connected to each other. Right? So it's like somehow this relationship that you have has assembled a large set of people who you both know, 
but they themselves don't really know each other that well because they oh. come from different parts of your life. Okay. Right. So do you have any theories about why dispersion is a strong indicator of whether two people are romantically involved? So I think it, I, I think what it's, it's showing and it, is that it, it's a, I think high dispersion like this, many mutual friends, not well connected is a, a signature of, of a certain kind of relationship. Um, romantic partnerships are a key example Family members are another example of this, where the, 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 the shared connections you have with this person, and for that matter, the shared experiences, the shared contexts, are really spread out throughout your life, right? And so, you know, in some sense, it, it, it's interesting that, you know, often when we would go look for links of high dispersion, uh, there'd be romantic partners there. There'd also be siblings, for example, right? And why do you have a highly dispersed relationship with your sibling? Because you grew up with this person. And so they met some of your high school friends when you were in high school. And they met some of your college friends when you were in college. You know, and maybe they've met some of your coworkers. They've met some people from various hobbies that you have in your life or various, you know, community pursuits that you have. And so the mutual friends you have with your sibling, you've acquired o- o- over your whole life and in such a way that they're really very spread out. Whereas the... Uh, mutual friends you have with a coworker were acquired in a single way. You work with them, and so you know lots of people from the company that you work at, so do they, and those people all know each other. They're all sort of collapsed into this one context. And so the pattern of like the relationship with the sibling, which was sort of slowly accumulated over decades, um, is going to look quite different from the pattern that you have with the coworker, where all of a sudden you've got all these mutual friends all from one context. And so now we ask the romantic partner, which is that going to look more like? It's going to be different for different people. But as it turns out, when you look at the data, it's much more like the pattern you see with a sibling or other family member, where as you've acquired these mutual friends with with the relationship partner, they've been spread out throughout many different parts of your life. They're sort of from these non-interacting parts of your life. But so if you take a person and you rank all of those people, uh, all of their friends, on this metric of dispersion, does the person who has the highest dispersion on their list of friends, is that person likely to be their romantic partner? Yeah. So this is what was so, um, what was so striking when we actually tried this. If you just compute this measure of dispersion and we have to make this numerical somehow. So, uh, you know, we, need some way of counting sort of how disconnected your, your mutual friends are, but we have a relatively simple measure of that. And if we, if we, if we, if we then say, let's give our algorithm, this dispersion measure, a network neighborhood on Facebook, one that's sort of selected at random from Facebook and allow it to make one guess to find a relationship partner. In fact, slightly more than half the time, the top scoring friend is actually going to be the relationship partner, right? So, you, you typically have hundreds of friends. And so randomly trying to guess who your relationship partner is uh, is not going to be a activity that's likely to succeed. But if you rank by dispersion, in fact, more than half the time with one guess, the algorithm gets it. Uh, so in fact, it's a very, very powerful way of identifying this, this, uh, this kind of connection. Hmm. So can you give me an idea of how you structured this experience, this experiment? What was the data set that you used and what did you do with it? 
Right. So how, the way we structured the experiment, so we, as I said, first we needed a numerical measure of dispersion. And, and essentially we um, looked, roughly speaking, at among your mutual friends, how dense were the connections among them. And we wanted to look for low density among the mutual friends. Um, so, we ha- so we had a ranking measure. We then um, randomly sampled roughly, uh, roughly a million users on Facebook, 1.3 million users on Facebook. Um, and we basically selected them uniformly at random, subject to a few simple conditions that they should sort of, the number of friends should be bounded away from the two extremes. So they had at least 50 friends, they had at most 2,000 friends. Um, they were at least 20 years old. And they uh, listed a um, relationship partner in their profile, which again is a mutual uh, connection. Both sides have to list the relationship partner in their in their profile. And so we had we had those conditions. Then we sampled uh, uniformly at random. The reason, of course, to have someone list a relationship partner is we want to evaluate how our algorithm was doing. Right in the end, you would want to apply this uh, in arbitrary context, but for doing the test, you'd want to see how how, you, how you're doing. And, you know, and, and of course, it helps that um, this is information, right, the information about the network neighborhood, you can basically piggyback it on the kinds of analysis that newsfeed ranking is doing in any case. Mm. Um, so we have these 1.3 million network neighborhoods. Each of them is basically represented as uh, this small network on a few hundred or a thousand people. Uh, we compute these metrics, the embeddedness, the dispersion, and some other uh, parameters of the, the network. We sort on these, and then we see how different approaches are doing at trying to guess who the relationship was. So you you benchmarked dispersion against embeddedness in this experiment. How did these two metrics compare against one another? When like was there were there any cases where? Uh, you know, embeddedness did better than dispersion for finding the relationship partner? Um, so dispersion always uh, did better than the embeddedness. So essentially dispersion was correct about half the time. Embeddedness was correct about a quarter of the time. So again, hundreds of things to guess. So it's not doing badly when it's correct a quarter of the time. Um, there were some interesting trade-offs. So a couple of, of these interesting uh Contrast. One was when, you know, so we're piggybacking this analysis on newsfeed ranking. Now, newsfeed ranking also has a lot of information just about your activities on Facebook. And you could ask the question maybe these are just as good or better at finding um, relationship partners. Uh, and so, what we found in, in particular is that there are certain metrics of your activity on Facebook that are reasonably good. Uh, at, at trying to identify relationship partners. So in particular, uh, whose profiles do you view, right? So we can ask questions, whose profiles do you view? Who do you message? Whose content do you comment on? Whose content do you like? All of these are things that we could be looking at. Um, from the set, uh, two quantities that actually were pretty good at finding relationship partners are uh, the person whose profile you view the most uh, and the person who with whom you're co-tagged in the most photos. Hmm. Neither of these was actually as good as dispersion overall at find relationship partner, but it suggested that there really are these two kind of independent sources of, or loosely dependent sources of information. One is the network structure, which dispersion and embeddedness are using. And the other is your activity on Facebook, which things like profile viewing, photo tagging, and so forth are doing. 
So that's that was one contrast that we looked at between the network measures like dispersion and the activity measures like profile viewing. And the network measures were doing slightly better overall. Then we looked at the kind of relationship. So you could say, are these two people married? Are they engaged? Are they just are they in a relationship generically? Um, and the relationships that were sort of, you know, you could say two people who are married, you'd expect the network may have had more time to kind of form around this relationship than two people who list themselves just as, quote, in a relationship. Um, and that was true. The network measures did much better on uh, pairs who were married uh, than pairs who list themselves in a relationship. But some of the activity mm-hmm. metrics actually did better on the people listed as a as in, in a relationship. And so when two people listed themselves as in a relationship, not engaged or married, uh, in fact, profile viewing um, and that kind of activity level metric was actually more powerful than dispersion, which operates on the network. Hmm. And eventually you started using machine learning as well. Can you give an overview of what you did with machine learning? Sure. So in some sense, from a, a machine learning perspective, what we've been talking about so far are individual features, right? So I, uh, I essentially have, have a classification problem, an extremely unbalanced classification problem in which one of these relation, one of these connections in your Facebook network is the relationship partner and all the other ones are not. And I'm trying to find the one that is. So it's this very unbalanced classification problem. Now for each connection, I have actually a whole set of features, right? So dispersion is one feature. Embeddedness is one feature. How much you viewed their profile is one feature. How many co- photos you're co-tagging is one feature. Um, and so what we've been talking about so far is which of these individual features, if you sorted by them, would perform the best? And you know, at the individual feature level, uh, dispersion was performing the best at sort of slightly better than 50% um, uh, accuracy in its, in its one guess. Um, but of course... There's no reason to look at these features individually. What we should really do is combine them, right? So we could combine them uh, using any, any of a, a variety of methods, decision trees, logistic regression, uh, or, or any, any other standard uh, black box uh, machine learning algorithm. And when we did that, the results were relatively approximately constant across different choices of methods. What mattered was simply putting all of these different features in and being able to come com- combine them using any of these machine learning algorithms. And when we did that, we could actually find the relationship partner, uh, again, with one guess, about 70% of the time rather than 50% of the time. So let's let's zoom out a little bit. So did you do this research at Facebook or in conjunction with Facebook? Because for, for those who don't know, you're a professor of computer science. Um, describe the, the relationship with Facebook and how you uh, started working on this. Yeah, so I was um, so I, I did this research uh, while I was on sabbatical uh, leave from Cornell. Uh, so um, uh, there was a year in which I was uh, I, I had this uh, sabbatical leave. I, I, I had I had this long running collaboration with Lars Backstrom uh, uh, at Facebook. He was my former PhD student at Cornell who had gone on to run uh, these very important parts of the engineering operation at, 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 at Facebook. And we had been continuing our collaboration on these sorts of issues in social networks. Uh, and so it, it seemed like a, a very natural sort of thing to focus on during this sabbatical period to try to sort of start up some, 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 some collaborations with him around um, social network questions on, uh, on Facebook. And so 
the work was actually done on on, on the infrastructure at, at Facebook, right? So all of the network data, the activity data um, was part of the in- internal infrastructure that they had there, you know, again, which is sort of the same uh, same framework, which is powering the ranking algorithms that run on newsfeed, for example. Mm. And how does industry research compare to academic research? I think one thing which is uh, where we're fortunate in computer science is that there's really a very close connection uh, between academic research and, and in the industrial research in computer science. And I mean, that's certainly one of the things that I enjoy about uh, about this as a field uh, is that from a, a position in academia, um, I can feel like I'm able to work on the problems that people are actually experiencing, you know, in an industrial context uh, at, the, at these tech companies. Of course, it's not the same, you know, one's experience in academia is going to be different from one's experience in, the, in, in industry. You know, and, and I think the contrast that people often talk about cer- certainly uh, apply, you know, that, um, you know, I think one great thing about the problem, you know, sort of the, the way one experiences problems in, in the industrial context is one, the, the sense of scale, um, right? You're seeing things at these enormous scales when you're running a large platform. Um, and also scale in terms of just the variety of issues that you have to deal with, right? So when a billion people are experiencing something, the number of different issues that are going to come up, the number of different ways in which that problem gets experienced are going to multiply correspondingly. And so there are a lot of issues you have to think about that if you were thinking about the problem more abstractly would just sort of never come up. You you wouldn't realize that that was a, 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 a case one had to deal with. So I think that's, you know, the both the scale and the complexity slash heterogeneity of, of the problem. And of course, the, the, the sort of constant churn and immediacy of the problems, right? That, uh, that the, the issues that one's encountering in, in these industrial contexts, um, you know, sort of come up in this very unpredictable way uh, as, as people, you know, uh, create new services as they use the internet in new ways. Um, correspondingly, I think, you know, one of the appealing features that, about a, about a, a, a academia is it, it gives one the space to try uh, thinking about the problems more abstractly um, uh, and trying to get at the core of a problem that might be portable between different dom- domains, right? Because I think one of the values of, of abstraction is that ideas that you think of in one context, uh, you know, can actually be used down the road as, as new, new, new contexts come up, right? I mean, it is striking, for example, that although you know, in the end, these sociological notions like embeddedness weren't exactly what we needed. Uh, it's nonetheless, I, I think, an impressive statement that, you know, we're dealing with a problem in the 2010s about how to rank content in social media. And we're able to go back to sociology literature from the 1970s on tie strength and find this extremely valuable point to start from. You know, and mm-hmm. I, I think that says something about the sort of the portability of these scientific ideas and scientific theories over a multi decade timescale. So I think that the, the two work very well together. And then, and again, that's, I think why we're fortunate in computer science that, that the, uh, the actual nature of the community is such that there's a, a very easy flow of ideas in both directions between academia and, and the industrial context. Mm. When I was in college, I took an algorithms course where your book was actually the textbook. Um, there are several listeners I'm sure who, 
also this is true for. Uh, your book is called Algorithm Design. You wrote it with Ava Tardos. Um, and one algorithm I remember distinctly from that book was stable matching. Uh, you described it very well. Um, I think you gave some proofs for it. And, you know, it, it, what's, sta- what's interesting about stable matching is it's this algorithm that succinctly describes how men and women might choose each other in a relationship, or it also can, you know, be to be used to illustrate how nurses might choose a hospital to do residency in and all these other applications of real life. But, you know, I think stable matching is, uh, it exists in all kinds of domains across the world. Um, but I think it's it's interesting when applied to to something like Facebook, where Facebook or other these other social networks expose us to a wider variety of relationships than we would be exposed to in the past. You could also, uh, you know, bleed this into the domain of online dating. Um, how do you think a social network like Facebook affects the the stable matching calculus of individuals in practice, like individuals seeking relationships? Yeah, so uh, interesting question. And so, so first of all, I'm I'm certainly glad to hear you, you enjoyed that part of the book. Um, we certainly picked that topic because, uh, as chapter one of the book, because it's a it is an example of a, a striking problem. It's very easy to state, and then there's a sort of surprising solution due to Gale and Shapley from the 1960s. Um, it's interesting that uh, the stale matching problem, as you point out, is was sort of framed as a metaphor for a variety of matching activities that were going on around that time. They're still going on now, matching of doctors and nurses to residencies, matching of students to internships, of applicants to college admission slots, uh, which was how Gail and Shapley first formulated their problem. And and somehow out of all those matching contexts, <clears throat> they, they then created this sort of almost pedagogical metaphor of men and women being matched up. Um, and so, but it's, a, it's an interesting thing that actually the empirical work on stable matching has looked at all these other domains, you know, internships and residencies and admissions, uh, certainly more than they have about the uh, metaphorical domain in which it was phrased, uh, namely uh, romantic partnerships. So as we look at something like Facebook, it is certainly a fair question to ask, how have things like that uh, changed? And and there certainly are um, a number of sites that have begun looking at the data that they're collecting from from doing online dating. Um, and you know, and I, th- I think we're, we're going to start seeing some interesting questions come out. So, kind of a, a, at a first level, uh, I would say, you know, a lot of the answer is we don't yet know what uh, what that's going to be. But there certainly is 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 is, is, is ongoing research. Um, at a second level, I you know, it is certainly the case that um, online social networks have changed uh, the kinds of uh, social connections, both romantic partnerships and also friendships of all types uh, that we that we have. And one way which I think about this is uh, to go back to this issue of strong and weak ties. It hasn't just changed the very strongest ties, like how, how we might meet, you know, future relationship partners or, or, you know, acquire close friendships. It's also, I think, changed the nature of how we think about our very weakest ties. Um, you know, so for example, uh, you know, and, the, and this is sort of a way that I kind of find it, you have found it for a while useful to think about conceptualizing Facebook that, you know, someone of my generation, when I graduated from high school, 
Um, you know, it, it's a sad fact that I lost touch with many of the people who I went to high school with pretty much on the day I graduated from high school. <laughs> you know, out, out of those 200 people, you know, I'm, there are many, many who, you know, who I, you know, would see each and every day and who I, you know, would, would be very happy to be in touch with now, but, but have just lost touch with over time because, you know, people coming from my generation, it was just very hard to maintain those connections, right? If you weren't writing letters to someone or talking to someone on the phone or, you know, as we got e- email, but even to keep up with someone through, through, you know, through, uh, 1990s style mail, uh, on the internet, uh, you know, it, it required you to actually maintain that at, at, at some rate. I think things are very different thanks to Facebook, right? So now if you graduate from high school, you have all those friendships either on Facebook or on Instagram or whatever your social medium of choice is. And that means that even going forward years into the future, if, if, if you maintain those connections and you maintain your presence on that platform, then as people, you know, get engaged, get married, get a new job, have a baby – you're going to hear about it. You're going to see it in your feed. You're going to see an update about it. And so it's allowing us to maintain these very, very weak social connections, right? Connections that are, in a sense, too weak for us to maintain unassisted. Um, but it, it's it's able to preserve them, right? It's something sort of cognitively hard for human beings about maintaining uh, this very, very lightweight social connection, right? You have to put enough energy in to maintain it, and then it somehow becomes a stronger connection, uh, but Facebook can maintain those forever. And so I think it, it means that people now, thanks to social media, do have a connection to their past and to their sort of most distant social connections uh, that people of earlier generations like mine actually, you know, would have liked to have had but weren't able to. Mm. Yeah, I think it's a very practical outlook. I think it's sometimes easy to take for granted the th- that type of um, social connection maintenance that Facebook has given us, uh, you certainly see it being taken for granted in, you know, discussions about, oh, Facebook is is doing this evil thing to our social interaction patterns, or Facebook is doing that evil thing, or um, taking advantage of our data or whatever. And it's easy to forget that um, it just has so much utility, uh, so much long-term utility. Um, so Yeah, absolutely. So what are you working on right now? Um, obviously, it's not, you know, th- this Facebook relationship analysis stuff was done in 2013, I believe. Um, mm-hmm. What are you working on today? So there are, there are a number of interesting questions in, the, in this uh, space still. I mean, in some sense, the, the range of questions is just ex- ex- expanding uh, very, 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 very rapidly. Um, you know, so one is certainly just the, the question of, uh, how these networks respond to uh, external forces, right? So often when we analyze a network, um, we think about, you know, how this network uh, operates as a thing in itself. We analyze the internal structure. We try to find things like relationship partners or other features of it. But in fact, of course, the network is being subjected to all sorts of external stresses. Uh, and so one thing in a different network context that I uh, I've recently been looking at with uh, Daniel Romero and Brian Utzi has been how networks of organizations respond to external stresses, right? So you have a company, for example, and now market conditions change. How does that affect the communication within the company, the interaction with the company? Uh, or in the example that we looked at in our, in our work, you have something like a hedge fund, which um, 
uh, trades in the stock market. Now, market conditions change, right? Uh, prices go up and down. How do we see that reflected in the communication within the network? And so th- th- there's basically a sort of widening of the lens to say we, we, we were looking at networks. Now let's look at networks sort of as they float in this kind of ambient surrounding environment uh, and how the stresses for that environment um, uh, interact with it. Um, there's a second line of work I've been thinking about with Sentinel uh, Malanathan, a, a behavioral economist at, at uh, Harvard, um, which is actually sort of about the, the actual methodology of doing machine learning or in some sense somehow the pragmatics of doing machine learning, right? So we, we've been talking about how we try to sort of in this, in this work on relationship partners, we, Lars and I sort of thought about different features that would work. We sort of dreamed up some novel features like dispersion. We combined them using machine learning. Um, there's this interesting feedback loop that goes on uh, when people use machine learning, which sort of resembles what Lars and I did, that there's a human domain expert or a team of human domain experts who know something about the problem and kind of use what they know about the problem to create features. And then there's the machine learning algorithms, which is these incredibly powerful things that ingest the features and produce prediction rules that are much more powerful than anything that we could do as human beings. And there's this symbiosis, right? Like we often think about machine learning algorithms and how they can now run almost autonomously. And that's true at some level, right? Once you've loaded them up with all the data about the problem, you've turned everything into features, now they're just off and they're running. Um, But if you look at the end-to-end process from encountering the problem all the way to producing an artifact that actually stands up and does something, that still is really some kind of interaction between the human designers and the machine learning algorithm. And there is some part that the humans add to the picture, right? This knowledge of the domain, this creation of, of the right features that has gone largely unmodeled in the practice of machine learning. And so that's something, and again, because this is joint work with uh, uh, Sendel, who's a, a behavioral scientist, we've been trying to think about this both from the algorithmic side and also just from the human cognitive uh, side, the, the perspective of human behavior, how domain experts might be able to come up with these kind of features that could then help solve the problem. Mm. So this question of uh, feature discovery is often discussed in uh, conversations around deep learning. Is mm-hmm. there uh, is there a, a, a way to integrate deep learning into this this type of methodology where you're you know you 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 provide some features to uh, some algorithm that some very complex algorithm that you're doing. And but you also use deep learning to discover other features that may be more subtle. Yeah, absolutely. And so I think the the active feature creation is going to take place both you know on the human side and on on the algorithmic side. Uh, deep 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 learning is a great example of where you know sort of to phrase it in extremely simplified form, right? That one takes um, some very simple low level features. Uh, and then in this kind of multi-layer way, one, one combines them into richer, more complicated features. Uh, for some domains, that, that, that suggests that you know, humans can step out of the way almost entirely, right? So for image recognition, we could say, as long as we all agree that the base level is pixels, then off we go. Um, for other domains, you know, it's not clear what the analog of the pixels are, right? And so for a number of these more complicated settings where... You know, we have people interacting and forming complex network structures, for example. We, I, I'm not sure we're at the stage where we say, these are the raw pixels, now the algorithm can take everything from there. Uh, and so I think um, there's going to be a range of different problems, uh, some of which are going to need more human assistance in creating the base level features. 
some of which it's clear what the base level features are. I think in all of those cases, it is certainly the case that uh, these, these powerful machine learning algorithms like, like deep learning are going to be able to take whatever we provide and create uh, composite features that, are, uh, that add even more to the problem. So now is that just, are we doing that because the, like we're not capable of getting that, like the deep learning systems can't discover the features that have the degree of specificity that a human could could specify? Or is it more because we just want to have some humans in the loop so we actually understand what our algorithms are doing? Yeah, so those are both possibilities. Uh, and it, and again, it'll depend on the domain. It, it certainly, one's on dangerous ground to say at any point that, you know, there's something special that people can do that computers can't do, right? Because once the problem is well-defined enough and it's turned into some kind of statistical predictive task, you should let the computer make the predictions. Um, it is, however, the case that there is something humans have, which is knowledge of the domain. And so I, th- I think it's in that bootstrapping where we have domains that we don't yet fully un- understand. There is a lot of human expertise needed to actually translate the messiness of the domain into something where the algorithm is going to be able to get some traction. You know, it often looks simple, like let's just dump everything we know in, in, into the algorithm. But if you, if you actually look at the internals of that process, there's a lot of care that's often taken to make sure that the algorithm isn't led into some strange part of the space where it's making predictions, but these actually have become kind of disconnected from the real problem. Um, so I, again, I think um, it's really the case that once that translation of the domain into something algorithmic has happened, then we should, by all, all, all means, let the algorithm do what it does best, which is predict. The second thing you asked about, which is the interpretability of these rules, that's a very intriguing question. It's a very rich question that I think a lot more work needs to be done on really just trying to understand the question of, you know, when, under what conditions, uh, and for what reasons, would we want to create uh, machine learning rules that are interpretable by humans, right? Mm -hmm. You could argue that in some cases we don't need to. Right. If we're going to have to sacrifice performance to make things interpretable to us as humans, it's not worth it because we're just trying to get the best predictive performance that we can. But you can imagine other contexts, for example, when I need to explain the results to a decision maker or when I need to send engineers in to kind of try improving or tweaking or fixing or debugging the algorithm when there are going to be some advantages to interpretability. And, and so I think the, the community is still at the beginnings of trying to understand the question not just how would we make these algorithms interpretable, but what are the situations under which we would want to make them interpretable and in which we would want to sacrifice certain other aspects of performance for the sake of interpretability. You, you mentioned some work around markets. Um, to what degree have you looked at these, like, uh, these uh, trading systems that are essentially black boxes um, I'm sure there's some work around deep learning being done in the trading systems areas. Um, are, are these are these systems still, uh, you know, are there still a lot of humans in the loop, or has it become more of a question of of deep learning algorithm designers? This is actually what you're studying. Yeah, so I would say the markets in particular, not something that we've looked uh, as closely at. So I I wouldn't want to make any absolute statements there um okay it's it's the case that that is it's another context where the worry will always be that you have a prediction algorithm it's 
working well, then something actually changes in the environment, right? Market conditions change in some fundamental way. And now the algorithm is just making bad decisions because it was trained during a period of time when the environment looked like a certain thing. It had certain distributions over the features, uh, had certain distributions over the correct actions, and it was doing very well. Uh, but if there's a discontinuous change, um, then you know, then all of a sudden things could look different, right? I mean, there are a lot of intuitive examples of this, right? So, you know, if my advertising system that's predicting what ads to show doesn't know that this weekend there's been a hurricane predicted, then it's not going to understand that suddenly people want to click on ads for generators, canned goods, batteries, <laughs> right? It's it just it's not going to know that because that wasn't in it. It, 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 it wasn't trained on data that included this, and so. You know, that's not to say that this is a, a hopeless task, but it, it gives some intuition about why we, we always have to be careful that an algorithm, you know, without our realizing it, could get out of its comfort zone um, and it, into some kind of new set of conditions. Right. Yeah. If it if it begins to overfit, you might have like a flash crash type of scenario. I mean, I, th- uh, I think, right. So trans- translating all, all these things into sort of the specifics of the domain are, are yeah, it's always a challenge. Uh the financial market context, as I said, not one that we've looked at as closely, uh, so hard for me to make absolute statements there. But it it definitely has those characteristics of something where you, you want to be careful that the world hasn't changed without you realizing it. Got it. So uh, as we begin to wrap up, um, you know, you, you've been studying algorithms for a long time. You have literally written a book about it um, that's very digestible, covers a lot of the canonical algorithms that a developer will be using in his or her lifetime. What are the questions or the, the fundamental algorithms that uh, you are starting to think about that perhaps social networks have made you think about more? Um, what are the big questions that are coming up that you think you're, are, are going to be studying you know, over the next five to 10 years? Yeah. So a great question, of course it, one of the interesting things about the field of algorithms is how it's both, you know, deepened and broadened at the same time. So it's deepened in the sense that a lot of the core algorithm questions have become richer. So for example, some of the graph algorithms that we talk about in our book, um, one now has the question how to do these at the scale of a billion node graph, for example, <laughs> because we're looking at a social network, you know, and, 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 and how to do it when that data is laid out in certain ways, when it comes at you in sort of a streaming one pass fashion, um, when you're when you're obtaining it only through random sampling, so there are many different ways in which we're now dealing with these sort of very large scale uh, kind of graph problems. Also, you know, of course, the kinds of settings and machine learning has made this this very clear that the kinds of settings we're looking at, we're often dealing with questions where, you know, the objective function has been determined in some kind of statistical approximate way. The notion of a of an absolutely correct answer no longer makes sense. We're trying to optimize uh, some measure of performance, which is some kind of approximation to performance in the real world. So the kinds of objective functions that we're dealing with have changed also. So that's sort of in the in the spirit of it, it reaching deeper into some of these core technical issues. It's also broadening in the sense that, you know, just within the past, you know, two to three years, um, I certainly find myself having more and more conversations with people who are thinking about the implication, people outside of computer science completely, thinking about the implications of uh, 
the ways in which algorithms are making decisions in our every, everyday lives, right? So algorithms being used uh, as part of the implementation of governmental policy, algorithms being used in the regulation of the economy, um, algorithms being used in sort of how we experience everyday life, what news we see, uh, who we're connected to, who we're matched up. And so all of these are things where um, things that had normally been part of fundamentally human systems are now these kind of hybrid human algorithmic systems. And often we don't really understand what the effect is of having an algorithm playing such an intrinsic role in these kinds of decisions and where things can go wrong. And so I, th- I, I think tr- trying to reason about a world where the decisions in everyday life are increasingly made with algorithmic assistance is going to be uh, a very, very interesting question going forward. Okay, John. Well, uh, I want to thank you for coming on the show, and thanks for writing a great book that I used in college. Thanks very uh, much. And a very interesting paper that was the backbone of this episode. So thanks again uh, for coming on Software Engineering Daily. Thanks very much. It was uh, great getting a chance to talk with you. Thanks to Symphono for sponsoring Software Engineering Daily. Symphono is a custom engineering shop where senior engineers tackle big tech challenges while learning from each other. Check it out at symphono.com slash sedaily. That's S-Y-M-P-H-O-N-O dot com slash sedaily. Thanks again, Symphono. Wow.